great to worship together this morning. Um, just a few announcements here um, before Steve comes up. First of all, Bob Vaughn has a birthday this week. Uh, so if you have a chance, say happy birthday to Bob. You can ask him how old he's going to be turning, but uh, just uh, we're excited to, to uh, celebrate when we have opportunities. Um, if you are part of our group that is planning on attending the newcomer's lunch, that will be immediately following the service today. So opportunity to get to know a little bit more about Creekside. If you're part of the Generation Jesus uh, group, you know who you are. Uh, some of our young people gather approximately once a month to uh, practice and uh, play some music together. So you guys are dismissed if you're a part of that group. And finally, uh, There'll be some more information next week, but in two weeks, on September 23rd, there will be a Haiti missions trip fundraiser. So there will be some food and some opportunities to have some fellowship together for that. So uh, next week, you'll hear a little more information about that. So with that, I'm going to invite uh, Steve to come on up. Thanks, Alan. Uh, I just wanted to say, if you are here and this is uh, your first time here or you're a newcomer here, uh, there is an additional fold on the bulletin, and we would encourage you to look at that and come fill that out and put it in the offering if that would work for you this morning. The offering box is on the welcome table as you, uh, it's out in the entryway, so you can do that. And I uh, would just like to say thanks to our praise team for uh, leading us in worship this morning. Appreciate them uh, doing such a good job from uh, Every, every day. Continue to keep the folks in our church family in your prayers. I know Paul and Gail Hoyce are at home and struggling with some issues going on. So uh, I guess Paul fell and broke his uh, rib, broke a rib and punctured a lung. And uh, so they're continuing to have some challenges there. So continue to, to pray for them if you would. There's others that are, are ailing. I know uh, Gene Arns is uh, uh, struggling and not doing as well, not with as much strength as he'd like to. But at 104, I uh, would imagine most of us would be uh, challenged a little bit. So I think that's right, 104, 103. Uh, I don't know, Bev's not here, so she can't keep me straight on it. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. We uh, uh, know that you're a cornerstone and a rock upon which we can stand. And as we uh, gather this morning to continue in worship through the study of your word, I pray that you would open our eyes. Uh, that we might behold wonderful truths out of your law. I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ gather in various congregations around uh, the, the metro and around the world, that your spirit would be powerfully working uh, to communicate the, the love of God and the, the grace of God and the mercy of God, that you would work in the lives of those who do not yet know Christ as their Savior, have not surrendered their will to yours, and that you would draw them to yourself and bring them to a place. I pray that they would express their faith or their trust in you, and ask that you would open us to understand your truths. If we know you as our Lord and Savior, that we might live more fully uh, to honor you and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a fit of foolishness, uh, a friend of ours had uh, committed a serious white-collar crime. And his fate was to be decided by a federal judge in a federal courtroom in which we were attending as witnesses for him. And this judge was particularly and notoriously predisposed against 
ruling in favor or any favorable ruling towards white-collar criminals. He was kind of nasty as it regards to that. Miraculously, uh, this friend of ours escaped time in prison. He did not have to go to prison. He did have to be under house arrest, and he did have to repay the things that he had uh, nefariously taken, and so that was just punishment for him, but he didn't get the full weight of what he could have received. In fact, uh, he was a little bit like uh, David in the story that we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11, in that God had mercifully kept him from the full consequences of his stupidity or his uh, nefarious activity. Yeah, I used the word. That's fine. It, it, it was it's, uh, you know, a violation of, of God's law. So our, our, our friend's situation parallels that of David's, but in both of these cases, we are, are taught that God our Father is in the habit of mercifully rescuing rather than ruining his children. Because God is a God who loves mercy. Uh, you see this and we read it in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. But God being rich in mercy. He's a merciful and gracious God. And so uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, or 29, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11, uh, David was, was in a pickle because of his own pride, okay? He was in a pickle. And the question is, would he join the Philistines in going against his own people Israel and fight against them or not? If he did so, he'd ruin his reputation with the Israelites. And if he didn't so, do so, then he would be exposed as a traitor to the Philistines. <laughs> he, was, he was in trouble. And if he fought the Philistines, then he would, you know, end his own life. Uh, so God, surprisingly, in our story this morning, uses the Philistines... And the commander's there to manifest the mercy of God in rescuing David rather than ruining him, which God could have done. And he rescued his servant. And he revealed, God did, through these pagan Philistine commanders, God's compassion towards his people. So I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read through the text. I'll be reading from the New American Standard version, so if you have a different version, that would explain it. There are uh, Bibles underneath the seats in front of you if you don't have one, or if you want to, if you have your phone or your tablet or device, you can, if you have an app on there, you can read along with me. First Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11, now the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. Now remember, Achish is one of the lords of the Philistines. He's the chief of Gath. Okay. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or, or rather these years, and I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the, commander, and, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. 
And do not let him go down to the battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For with what could he, this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army or pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore return and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He must not go up with us to battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David rose early, arose early, he and his men to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Interesting story, but in this text, the Philistines' opposition to David, their opposition to David, David's participation in the battle that was to be taking place, I believe, manifests three comforting characteristics of God's mercy towards his people. And the first one is found in the first five verses. We see our Lord's mercy is subtle. And there are a couple of ways I see from the text that Again, not the only ways, could be different ways, could be different thoughts from it, but ways that I see God's mercy manifest very subtly towards his servant David and by application to his servants, the principle applying, I think, to us as well. First of all, our Lord is aware of his servant's circumstances. He's aware of David's circumstances, he's aware of our circumstances, and particularly circumstances that we're in because of our own rebellion our own self-reliance, circumstances that have been precipitated because we have decided not to trust fully in God, but that we've decided we have a better plan and we're going to do it on our own. So here we see, the first of all, that in, in, in chapter 28, verse 25, if you have your text open, you can see that we left Saul, and Saul was slinking away at night, knowing that his demise was coming the next morning. And he was going off to Goboa to fight and to die. We come to chapter 29, verse 1, and we see, Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies. Now the Philistines. So what's happening here is that chapter 29, verse 1, takes us back to chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. And I tried to tease this out a little bit last week. I'm going to hopefully make it a little clearer and not muddy the water. But see, what happened was that it takes us back to this story with the Philistines assembling their battle, all the armies in Aphek, and they're assembling their battles in Aphek while the Israelites are in Jezreel. Okay, they're, they're up in Jezreel. And what's happening is, I want you to look at this uh, thematic screen. I, I've got a, uh, a slide up here, I think, yeah, okay. So you can see up on the screen that uh, we... 
this right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, David's dilemma. We talked about that, right? David, what was David's dilemma? David's dilemma was uh, he had made himself so enamored, or Achish was so enamored with him, he said, hey, you can go up and fight the Israelites with us. Well, David is an Israelite. He's the anointed king of Israel. He doesn't want to go up and fight against his own people. But if he doesn't go, then he's going to be ousted from the protection of Achish and maybe even die. So we saw that dilemma. But now, last week, we looked at Saul's dilemma. Saul's dilemma was he's facing the Israelite army, or the Philistine army, but he's without God. He has no communion with God. He has no communication with God. So he doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do. The issue has to do with that. This text right here that we looked at last week actually happened. The events of that text with Saul slinking down and finding the witch of Endor happened after the text, the events that we're going to talk about today. So we should go right from chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, where it says that David was uh, approached by Achish and said, do you want to go up to, with us to battle? You're going to go up and you're going to fight with us. And then we get right to chapter 29, verse 1 and following, where David is there and all the armies are assembling for the Philistines. And then they're told, no, you can't go. David, you can't go. You and your men, you can't go. And then they go up. Well, why did they put it out of order? I think they put it out of order chronologically because their author wanted to contrast and compare. He wants to compare David's dilemma up here with God and Saul's dilemma without God so that he can then compare the deliverance of David, which we're going to talk about today, with the destruction of Saul today and next week, and then the destruction of Saul in chapter 31. I want you to look at the slide of the geography and maybe that would help clarify it some so this is Aphek okay that's chapter 28 verses 1 and 2 it's all of chapter 29 which we're going to talk about today they're gathering for battle the Philistines well they're gathering for battle here and the Israelites are up here in Jezreel okay so that's going on in chapter 28 Verses 1 and 2 and 29. So will they gather them here and then in 29 they're going to go up and they're going to try to make this march up here to get up to Shunem. Well, this is when David's, uh, the Philistines tell David, nope, you can't go. You can't go. But the Philistines did go and they came up here to Shunem. The Israelites were in Jezreel and they slung over here to Mount Goa. But we talked about that last week. So what happened last week actually took place, what we talked about last week actually took place after what we're going to talk about today. Because Saul, Saul from Mount Goboa, he saw the enemies gathered here, and what did he do? He slunk around at night and went up here to Endor and met the witch, and then he came back, slinking back. So when he slinks back here in chapter 28, verse 25, that's all stuff that took place after what we're going to talk about today when David has said, you can't go up to fight in Israel. And it's all so that there can be this contrast. In the last five chapters, it's David's dilemma versus Saul's dilemma. It's David's deliverance versus Saul's destruction. Now, the Philistines. David and his men, they're in a pickle, right? They're in a no-win situation. It's kind of like yesterday. If, if you have a split household, uh, you know, 
uh, some of you are Hawk fans and some of you are, are Cyclone fans, and if you were watching the game, it, it's, it's a no-win situation in your, ha- in your family, right? I, I, I drive by and I see these uh, flags and I see these rocks, you know, the Cyclones and Hawkeyes, you know, and it's, it, it's a no-win situation in that kind of deal. He's in a no-win situation, David and his men, as they, as they leave there. And so in verse, tw- or verse 2 of chapter 29, And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands. So you're here, David. He's got 600 dudes with him. And uh, he's seeing all the Philistine armies gathering by their hundreds and by their thousands. And it's emphasizing the, the difficulty of his dilemma. And so where do we see David and his boys? Uh, bringing up the rear. They're, they're kind of hiding in the back with a quiche, kind of hoping they don't get noticed. Uh, at least that's what I'm understanding. They remain under the radar. Okay, try to, but they don't. They, they try to remain under the radar. And what we don't see in the text, what's, what, 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 is, what is not obvious, is that the Lord is not oblivious, nor is the Lord indifferent to the circumstances in which David is in. And you know what? As you and I walk through our lives, and we make some poor choices, we decide to go on our own, we do things that we shouldn't do, we say things we shouldn't say, we get involved with people we shouldn't get involved in, we make choices like this friend of ours who made, who committed the white-collar crime, guess what? God is not oblivious to that circumstance and that situation. Even though we may think he's oblivious to it, he, he's not. In fact, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there's nothing that's hidden from his sight. All things are laid bare and naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, I just said that he's aware of the circumstances of believers, but if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, guess what? <laughs> you're not, you have not escaped his purview either. Uh, there is nothing that is outside of God's influence. So be encouraged. I think, you know, when we mess up and we go the wrong way like David did, God sees, he knows, he understands. Secondly, as we read now, that not only is he aware of it, but his mercy is shown subtly by the fact that he's active in his servant's circumstances in, I think, surprising ways, as we see in the text. Verse 3, And the commanders of the Philistines said, what are the Hebrews doing here? I mean, these are like the, 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 the rivals. It's just like every person wearing black and gold in Jack Trice Stadium yesterday. What are these people doing here? You know? And it's the same way when there are a few cardinal and gold people down in Kinnick Stadium. It's like, what are they doing here? These are our rivals. And, uh, and, 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 and Kish gives the answer. Hey. This is David. I mean, since he deserted to me 16 months ago, this is chapter 27, verse um, 7, he's been nothing but good. He's a good guy. He's with me. He's with us all the way. He is our ally. He's not an adversary. And you know, if you think about it, when we looked at chapter 27, if you weren't here for or chapter 27 and 28, if you weren't here, that's okay, but just take my well, don't take my word for it. Be a Berean and look at it. But I, I think the summary is that uh, you, you could say that it, this is a testament, Akisha's statement about David's integrity. 
is a testament to Achish's gullibility more than it is to David's nobility. Okay? <laughs> David wasn't a good dude in that whole situation. He was deceiving Achish, but Achish thinks he's a great guy. Greatest thing since sliced bread. He's a good dude, so don't, don't worry about him. Now, we see in verse 4, but the commanders of the, these guys are more savvy, okay? The commanders of the Philistines, they were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, make him go back, okay? Their opposition was intense, and it was insightful. You give them credit. They're, they, you didn't pull the wool over their eyes. Do not let him go up, lest he become an adversary. What better way for David to earn favor with Saul than to off a few Philistines, you know, kind of clandestinely. And he says, to, to serve up their heads. Now, think back. David had been charged by Achish to be the guardian of his head in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. He says, well, you're going to be my bodyguard and protect my head. This is the same David who knows uh, how to serve up a, a Philistine head. Chapter 17, and Goliath. And so the Philistine commanders they, other than Achish, they do not have a short memory. They have a good memory, and they remember that, and they say, why in the world is he doing this? Why would you let him be here? Verse 5, is this not David? I mean, they don't stop. Is this not David? The one of whom they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousand? You see, they had a good command of history, and they were up on contemporary music. So they, 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 they pulled and drew from these resources and they applied it to the situation. And they knew this Hebrew song of victory was one that every little Hebrew child grew up singing. That, you know, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And they did this. They brought this up. Why? To undermine the credibility of David. To prove that he wasn't all that he said he was. was. They wanted to undermine David's credibility as any sort of an ally to them. Almost every politician will campaign on how they're going to reduce government spending. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. A lot of them do. But the ones that do campaign on the fact that they're, some of them campaign on they're going to increase it. Okay, so I'm not talking about those. But the people who say they're going to decrease government spending, guess what they do when they get into elected office? No. They forget about it. And so they undermine, their actions undermine their, their credibility is what they say. This is what the Philistine commanders are saying. David, his actions have undermined any proclamation or any demonstration that you have seen to Kish. No, don't trust the guy. We're not taking him with us. Now think about this. God used the pagan commanders of the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines, to prevent David's ruin. It was a merciful act. He demonstrated in the most uncanny way that God was aware and active, and he used the Philistine commanders to do it. Just like God used this 
judge who was predisposed to white-collar criminals and gave our friend a reduced sentence. It's amazing how God's mercy works in subtle, although surprising ways. Now, secondly, in verses 6 through 10, we see that our Lord's mercy is, is shocking in, in some ways. And there are three ways that I'm mentioning from the text. Actually, uh, there are three ways that I'm going to talk about him being shocking. In his, actually, I've got four. You've only got three on your outline. So I added one at the last, but that's, uh, I guess that's the way it goes. So anyhow, first of all, uh, now this one I don't really like the wording of, so just bear with me on that. Uh, three ways, first four ways actually. His servant's Lord, that is David's Lord, was honored in spite of his dishonorable conduct. So in spite of David acting like a knucklehead, he is able, somehow, God is honored through it. Now, this is a, that's a shocking, uh, merciful act. When you can act like a rebel and God is still glorified. Uh, I'm not saying that's a plan, uh, so don't make it a plan. Don't try to do that, but somehow God works it out. So here we see in, uh, in, in this, shockingly, in verses 6 and 9, now I'm not going to go necessarily chronologically in the, in the text, so you have to bear with me a little bit. So in verse 6 and verse 9, it's the pagan chief. The only mention of God in chapter 29 comes from the lips of the pagan king or chief, Akish, which I find a bit fascinating, a bit interesting. In the first verse, verse 6, not first verse, but verse 6, the first mention, he says, as the Lord lives, all right, and then later in verse 9 he says, like an angel of the Lord, he's affirming David's integrity. In both of these verses, he's affirming that David is a good guy. David is acting with integrity. David is somebody that's pleasing to me as the Lord lives, and, he, and he's actually so good that he's like an angel of God. I'm thinking... Dagon was their main god, and we saw, we saw earlier what happened when the ark was placed, uh, placed around Dagon. Dagon was like, boom, the, 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 the god, their idol, was laid down and, and its hands were cut off. And it was like, whoa, what happened to the, the Dagon? Well, God had done it. But he, he's, he's like, whoa, what's going on? So what surprises me here is that despite David's deception... His devotion to Yahweh, his devotion to Israel's God was at least in some way significant enough that it caught the attention of the pagan chief. It made a positive impression. And it's a rare mercy that uh, rebellious actions of God's servants would bring honor. They didn't bring honor, but in spite of that, God would be honored through it. Secondly, uh, his servant's reputation was preserved when his conduct was perverse. David wasn't acting, you know, with integrity all through this whole situation with regard to Achish. But in verses 6 and 9, the irony of it is that the deceived defends the deceiver. The deceived Achish defends the deceiver David in, in, both, in both of those texts. That Achish would declare of David, you're going out and you're coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight. Verse 6 proves that 
he was convinced of David's loyalty and pleased with him without knowing that he was, in fact, being duped. He just didn't know, didn't know what he didn't know. He thought it was all good. And he says, he's, he's, he's good to me. And then when he says, I have found no evil in you, he says, in verse 6, for I have not found any evil in you. It wasn't because he was looking. Because if he'd been looking, he'd have found evil in David. But he didn't find any evil because he wasn't looking for any evil. Achish viewed David as the paragon of virtue and a trusted ally. But he really was pressured and forced to go along with the other lords of the Philistines. He was outnumbered four to one. And uh, he knew if he opposed them, that was the end of him. And so he said, no, we can't do it. And Achish viewed the commanders, and uh, he was forced to comply. But twice he expresses his regret. I want you to see in verse 6, he says at the end of verse 6, nevertheless, that word nevertheless, it comes after his attesting of David's integrity. So it's like, I regret this. You've been good to me, but nevertheless, in spite of all that, no matter what, I still have to go along with the Philistines. You're not pleasing in the eyes of uh, of the Philistine lords. Then, if you see in verse 9, it says, at the middle, in the middle of verse 9, it says, Nevertheless, he just said, you're pleasing to me. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he must not go up with us. He must not go up with us. David's required withdrawal left his reputation with the quiche intact. It left his reputation with the Israelites intact. Remember in chapter uh, 27, how he had been making, ra- making raids in the southern regions of, the, of, the, of Judea, but he'd been raiding the Israelite enemies while he was inferring to Achish that he was actually raiding Philistine enemies. No. So David, if he was to go up into battle and fight the Israelites, he would ruin his reputation with the Israelites that he'd won their, their, their favor through all of his other previous exploits and if he fought against the Philistines then he would ruin his reputation among them and he'd be offed he'd be dead he'd fight it and so this was a win-win for David to not go up and not to fight okay he didn't have to endanger his life he no longer had to choose between killing fellow Israelites or being killed by turning on the Philistines that's what I want to say does God guarantee us that we'll be escape all the consequences of our, our, our foolishness? No. That's not what this text says. Because sometimes we feel the consequences of our, our, our rebellion. Uh, some of you will remember the verse in 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. Well, it comes in an interesting section of Scripture in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. It's the story of Asa. And Asa is basically doing kind of what David did. He's rebelling and not trusting God. And he ends up paying some, some price for it. So he ends up suffering consequences, not ultimately expunged. He's, he's not ruined. Okay? In fact, he is, is somewhat rescued, but he's not ruined. But he does suffer the consequences. So there is sometimes we suffer the stupid the consequences of our foolishness, sometimes we don't, but in all of it, God is still merciful. Okay. Thankfully, the Lord's mercy still preserves his servants 
our reputations despite our problems, despite, despite our rebellion. I, I've been helping my folks oh, with getting ready for their, their uh, estate sale, and I was uh, traveling into Winterset with a load of some stuff and going to go help them with do some things, and I pulled up the stop sign, didn't quite get stopped, but almost, and then I turned the corner, and guess what I met? Flashing lights. You got pulled over. Uh, officer comes up, says, yeah, you have any idea why I pulled you over? Yeah, I said, I just, I didn't get quite, I didn't get quite. Yeah, he says, you were just real close, but not quite. I mean, he was sitting there like, you know, 100 yards away watching me. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you got a brake light that's out. Uh, so he's, he goes back, takes my license, registration, insurance, all that stuff. Comes back, he says, uh, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I'm just going to give you a warning. Uh, he says, you know, uh, run through a stoplight's a $212 fine. Uh, and I'm thinking, Ooh. Uh, so uh, all I can think is God's mercy. No, no permanent record of any wrongdoing. You know, I got a couple of slips of paper that says I did something wrong, and I know I did something wrong. But here it was, the reputation is still intact in spite of stupid stuff. Okay? What an act of mercy. This, that's all it is. It's, it's God's mercy. Thirdly, we see that his servant's dilemma was solved in verses 9, uh, 7 through, through 10, actually. And I'm going to read verse 7 again. It says, Now therefore return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the, of the Philistines. Achish regrettably sent David and his men packing, uh, return, go in peace, insisting that if you don't go, you're going to upset these guys, and that's not something that you want to do. And uh, to resist that order would have meant David and his men, I mean, they would have been killed. I mean, that, that's, that's, all there is, that's all there is to it. Rather than punish God or punish David for his rebellion, what is, what is God doing? He extended mercy. And he delivered him without ruining his reputation and without endangering his life. Uh, you know, he, 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 was, he, he was good. It was, David, David, was, David was there, okay? Uh, now, God it doesn't guarantee it that that's going to that's gonna happen all the time, uh, uh, you know. But when, when we're, we're taught in our foolishness that we, we, cannot, we cannot foil God's way. I mean, even when we do stuff, again, it's not a license to do this stuff. I'm not excusing our rebellion, not excusing our resistance to God. But when we do it, we do not foil God's way. We do not foil God's will for our lives. Uh, there was a, a friend of ours who was preparing for a mission trip, and he, he says this after the fact, but he was kind of like, you know, expecting to do great things for God, you know, on the mission trip and make a big impact for God on the mission trip, and he got sick. Spent most of the trip in bed and realized that God was mercifully rescuing him from his self-reliance. <laughs> Some people in the Puritans would call it a severe mercy. Okay, but he was mercifully keeping him from doing something and doing things that thought that would, you know, he could pat himself on the back and break his arms, you know, you know, doing this. And so God, God does that for, for us. Verse 8, and David said to Achish, but what have I done? So now get this, Achish 
the deceived is defending the deceiver. That's a quiche, is defending David. Now, the rescue, rescued is renouncing the rescue. It's like David's like, no, no, wait a second. I don't, I don't want this. I think he's faking it. I think he's putting on a show. I think he's playing it to, to somehow accentuate the fact that he, he really is loyal to Akish when he's not. He's feigning loyalty, faking loyalty to Akish in order to win his favor so he can continue to be protected while the whole time he's an ally of Saul and the Israelite army. Okay? I may not, I may not, I may not go. Then he says at the end, he says, notice the end of verse 8. He says, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. It's kind of a disappointment. He's disappointed. I can't go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. But that reference, my Lord the King, is kind of ambiguous. Who's he talking about? Well, of course, Akish thinks he's talking about him. When in fact, he's talking about David, talking about Saul. Probably. Again, I can't prove that, but it seems like it's kind of like he just kind of lays it out there and he doesn't really. Uh, nail it down and I think it's deliberately vague because he wants Akish to think that he's on his side so he can continue to hide out in Ziklag from Saul and that's what accomplished verse 9 but Akish answered and said David I know that you are, are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God nevertheless the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to battle you are pleasing in my sights the third time that Akish, in this text, the third time that Akish attested to David's integrity and loyalty. But Akish has to go with the Philistine lords. He doesn't have really much choice. And he repeats their admonition. You must, go up and, you must not go up with us to battle. You must depart. That's uh, verse 10. It, you know, it's, a not, it's just like he's protecting. David is being protected. From that dilemma. Now, the fourth way that I see this uh, deliverance coming about, the, the, the fourth way that the manif shocking manifestation of mercy actually uh, kind of spills the beans about next week a little bit. But interestingly enough, and Anand is going to be sharing from First uh, Samuel chapter thirty, so he'll uh, expound on this more. But we see his servants' people. God's servants, people, and possessions were saved because David and his men were sent back. It ends up that he's made aware of a raid that had happened in his hometown. His family and all the families of his men and all their possessions had been looted and taken, and they were able to go back and rescue him. Which never would have happened had he gone up to battle with the Philistines. It's amazing. And there's one, one final way that we see God's mercy manifest here, and that our Lord's mercy is sure. In verses 10 and 11, in verse 10, now arise, and just observe here, early in the morning. Uh, we left chapter 28, what was, what was Saul doing? He was leaving at night. And in the morning he died. And now we have David being told, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. And as soon as you have risen early in the morning, when it's light, depart. 
And then in verse 11, so David arose early in the morning. I mean, that's not there, but early in the morning. And his men to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So what do I want to say? David was in a pickle. And he was responsible. His lack of faith, okay, his lack of faith, his sinful deception and his self-reliance landed him in this impossible situation. But God didn't hang him out to dry. Could have, but he didn't. Because that's the God whom we serve. He didn't then, he doesn't now. Again, in all of our stubbornness and in our sinfulness, God remains faithful. He remains merciful. His mercy never fails. Because He's rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, 3, He's rich in mercy. Now, I want you to stop for a minute. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just think about it. Most of us, most of us, can remember times, I said times deliberately, in our lives when, when we've, uh, we've relied upon our own clever ideas, right? Or we're confident in our own abilities or trusted in our own resources just to handle the situation. Didn't really need to trust God with it. We got this. We've pursued relationships that we shouldn't have pursued. We've made hasty or foolish decisions. We've changed our vocation or our, our career path. We've indulged our passions and we've pursued our vision either indifferent to or in direct defiance of the Lord's direction with one of two outcomes. And the first outcome is that we may be stung by our stubbornness. We may feel the pain of our perversion or our rebellion. Another believer I know committed white-collar crime, defrauded people. And this believer I know spent six months in prison while he had to trust his church family to care for his family, while he was uh, made fully aware of his criminal offenses and what he had done and, his, and, and had to make repayment for the offenses. God did not deliver him from the full weight. No, he didn't deliver him from some of the consequences, uh, the difficulty. But what God did do was when he was in prison, he alerted him to what was going on and, and he restored him to communion with God and gave him a direct, uh, a clear vision of what his mission in life should be. He rescued him. He didn't ruin him. So sometimes God takes our foolishness and we feel the weight of it but we don't feel the full expense of it because if we did we'd be obliterated he doesn't ruin us but he restores us and he, he, he works in our lives and the second option is that he does what he did with David and sometimes he does rescue us from the repercussions of our rebellion like David but whether we're pained by the consequences or we're protected from them the point is this God doesn't give up on us I don't know about you, but I could probably point, I mean, 
almost every day, I, I, I like, I'm going my own way. I got my own idea. I'm going to do my own thing. And yet, I mean, like, so people think that God is some cosmic killjoy, that he's just waiting for us to mess up and then, you know, squish you like a bug. I mean, we most have been toast a long time ago if that was the case. No, that's not who, that's not who God is. That's not who he is. When we're flaky, when we're fickle, God is faithful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, do you, let's, I pray we'll get a grasp of the marvelous mercy of God that is patiently enduring our rebellion on a daily basis and that would move us not to justify further rebellion, but repentance and moving towards God in communion with Him. His mercies never fail. Some of you know Psalm 23, verse 6. Well, at the end of, of Psalm 23, verse 6, do we have that up here? No. In Psalm 23, verse 6, he, he's, he, his mercy is there. You can turn to it right now if you want. Psalm, 20, Psalm, Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. In verse 6, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, goodness and mercy. Lamentations. You know that one? Lamentations chapter 3. Your, 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 his, his loving kindness never fails. His compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. His compassions are new. His mercy is new every morning. In 2825, Saul left in darkness, hopeless of what was going to happen, facing death and in eternity in outer darkness. In this text, David left in the light, full of hope. <laughs> the dilemma was gone. Deliverance was his as an undeserved recipient of God's mercy. So if you're here this morning and you know you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this is the thing. We, can, we have no license to rebel, okay? No license to rebel. But we rest and we rejoice in God's subtle, shocking, and sure mercy in our lives. Whether we receive damaging consequences or we are completely, uh, you know, if we do, we never receive the full weight of all this uh, that we deserve. That's the point. If you're here this morning and, or you're listening online and you've never fully surrendered, get this. There's deliverance only in Christ. That's all there is. God doesn't guarantee deliverance. He doesn't guarantee us escape from the consequence, all the consequences when we rebel, but he does guarantee us escape from the ultimate consequences of rebellion, and that is life everlasting and forgiveness of our sins. And that's the promise and that's the hope that you, if you don't know Christ, have through the person and the work of Jesus. All who persist in willful alienation from God will suffer eternal condemnation. But if you'll turn from your sin and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he paid the price that you deserve to pay, then you can be forgiven. That's the ultimate expression of God's mercy. When sinful rebels 
receive forgiveness and are welcomed into God's family only because of what Christ did on the cross and nothing that we've done. We get what we do not deserve in the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's the glorious hope of the Christian life. That's a glorious hope that we have. And it's the greatest expression of mercy. And as we take uh, bread and juice, we remember the mercy of God poured out at Calvary so that all who believe could be forgiven and have life everlasting. And then experience His mercy on a daily basis as we are in process of becoming more like Christ. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to take a few moments to get your heart right with God and maybe confess the rebellion, confess the self-reliance, and turn from it and repent. Before you come and take the bread and the juice in celebration of the mercy you received at your salvation and the mercy that continues with us as His children. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you that you're rich in mercy. I thank you that your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives if we're your children. I thank you that your loving kindness never fails. Your compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness to us. And I pray that those of us who know you would, would reflect on and rejoice in and rest in the mercy of God for undeserving sinners. And I pray that those who don't know you this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that in their hearts they would be panged in their conscience and realize that they're headed for an eternity apart from you and that they need and want and desire the mercy of God that brings them to right relationship with you. And as we take the bread and take the juice... Help us to do so with sober reflection and with joyful celebration. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the
in the prayer.